Many of you know uh, Brother Andrew Martinez. Uh, he's been coming around here for uh, some time now. I'll let you figure out why he's been coming. Uh, Andrew's already a very fine gospel preacher, and he is uh, increasing and enhancing his studies over the Memphis School of Preaching here in the last several months. Uh, the elders here uh, said a while back we want to give him the opportunity to preach now and then. And so we're going to um, turn it over to him for our lesson uh, today. We're thankful for his uh, good faith and his good knowledge uh, that he has. So good to see uh, Dale and Courtney uh, Weaver here again with us. They're baptized in Christ just a month or so ago. And they are, they are working hard, working very hard. You know, becoming a Christian is a whole change of life. And it's the most wonderful decision you can make. But... But when you become a Christian, you need a lot of encouragement. So keep praying and uh, uh, getting to know uh, Dale and Courtney better. Right now, let's uh, get ready to worship more and listen to God's Word. Good morning. It's certainly good to see everybody, and I appreciate the opportunity uh, every time I get, we get to open up our Bibles and discover more about God's will and, and what God's expectation for us, it's a blessed uh, moment. And I certainly am grateful for you and grateful for uh, your uh, presence here. And we're certainly grateful for, uh, to the God of heaven for providing us this opportunity, for pro- providing a day uh, like today where his saints get to gather together, uh, gather together in worship and spirit and in truth. And so we are Blessed people indeed. Second Kings chapter 5 will be the source of our lesson this morning. In the Bible, we read of people responding and responding to the word of God. Uh, there seems to be uh, emphasis today uh, away from the word of God, it seems. And so we want to remind ourselves where the important thing is in regards to Faith. You might recall Jesus saying to the Pharisees in John eight forty three, Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. And to me, if you ask me, that's one of the most frightening things Jesus can ever say to anybody. It's frightening because the words of Jesus are the very words of life, John six sixty three. It's frightening because the words of Jesus are the very words that set us free, John eight thirty one and thirty two. It's frightening because the words of Jesus are, are the very words by which we will be judged, John 12, 48. It's frightening because the words of Jesus are the very words of God, Hebrews 1, 1 and 2. How God, in, in sundry times and in diverse matters, spake in times past unto the fathers by the prophets, but has in these last days spoken to us by His Son. And here Jesus is telling individuals, you do not have the ability to hear my word. And friends, that's frightening. And so we want to make sure that we have the ability to hear God's word. In 2 Kings chapter 5, we are introduced to Naaman. Naaman has a response to the word of God, much like many do in religion today. And the first couple of verses here in this chapter, we find out who Naaman is as a person. Note the position that Naaman occupies. Verse 1, it says, Now Naaman commander of the army of the king of Syria. Immediately, we find out that we are talking about a very important person here. 
Note how he's described, though. Note his character. He was a great and honorable man in the eyes of his master, because by him the Lord has given victory to Syria. Syria, he was also a man of valor. I suppose if we close our Bibles at this point, this would be a different kind of story. But it's how the verse ends that really sets the stage for the rest of the chapter. We find out that Naaman is a leper. In verse 2, we're introduced to another character simply referred to as a young girl. The King James Version would say a, a little maid. She is captive from the land of Israel, made to be a servant, and is now here in the land of Syria. She waited on Naaman's wife. That's what the verse says. Now, we don't know much about this little girl, but I suppose if you were the one that was taken captive away from your home, and now you're living in a place that's not your home, I suppose that you are not going to be seeking the welfare of your captors. But amazingly, she does. Maybe you would be like me. Maybe it would be the case that I found out that my master, who took me out of my home and now has forced me to live in his, and when I find out that my master has leprosy, good for him. Karma. Ain't that what we would say? But that's not her reaction. Verse 3, she has a message. And the way that she expresses the message, it almost makes it seem as if she has an emotional and personal stake in his health. She says to her mistress, If only my master were with the prophet who is in Samaria, for he would heal him of his leprosy. You know, there's no such thing in the Bible as an insignificant person. God doesn't create insignificant people. This young girl, who we might say had every right to be bitter, she directs her master to the solution of what ails him. And we don't even know her name. In verse 4, the solution reaches the king's ears. Naaman went in and told his master, that is the king of Syria, saying, thus and thus said the girl who is from the land of Israel. You know, Naaman is important to the king. And so the king says in verse 5, Go now, I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he departed and took with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, ten changes of clothing. Then he, that is Naaman, brought the letter to the king of Israel, which said, Now be advised, when this letter comes to you, that I have sent Naaman my servant to you, that you may heal him of his leprosy. I don't know if there was a miscommunication at this point. Because what the young girl told Naaman was that there was a prophet in the king of Israel who could remove your leprosy. But when Naaman goes to the one who's supposed to remove the leprosy, he goes to the king. And note how the king responds. He brings his letter to the king, and the letter, what the letter essentially says is, You, king, you remove the leprosy from Naaman. At least that's how the king of Israel reads it. Because in verse 7, we see him react to the letter. And it happened when the king of Israel read the letter that he tore his clothes. You know, in the Bible, when you're reading of people tearing their clothes, usually it's not a good thing. Furthermore, note what he says, am I God? Am I God and may, that to kill and make alive that this man that is the king of Syria sends this man, Naaman, to me to heal him of his leprosy? 
Why would another king send me his commander who is full of leprosy so that I could heal him? There must be an ulterior motive. At least that's what's going on in the king of Israel's mind. The rest of verse 7 states the conclusion that the king draws. Therefore, please consider and see how he, that's the king of Syria, seeks a quarrel with me. What's going on in his mind is that the king of Syria has sent this man Naaman, who is full of leprosy, and he sent him to me asking me to do an impossible task. That when I say, send Naaman back uncured, the king of Syria is now going to find a reason to go to war with me. Verse 8. Elisha gets wind of the situation. So it was when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, that he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Please let him come to me, and he shall know that there is a prophet in Israel. What a prophet means is that God speaks through that person. A prophet is the mouthpiece of God. And when you read in the Bible, you see these people that God has chosen to be prophets. And usually when they spoke the word, they accompanied that word with a miracle. I mean, how else would you know? How else would you know that that word was heaven sent? There is a prophet in Israel. You know, in and of itself, those words do not mean a thing. There is a prophet in Israel. What's implied here is that there is a God in Israel who speaks to his people. Moses would put it this way. For what great nation is there that has God so near to it as our Lord is to us? That we may call upon him for whatever reason. Deuteronomy 4.7 There is no God like Jehovah. Elisha says to the king, send Naaman to me and he'll know. He'll know what a prophet means. Verse 9, Naaman arrives at the house of Elisha. Then Naaman went with his horses and chariot, and he stood at the door of Elisha's house. Now it's no stretch of the imagination. I mean, considering the position of this man, Naaman, a commander of the army of Syria, and considering his, the, the fact that the Bible describes him as a great man, a mighty man of valor, it's no stretch of the imagination to say that Naaman arrived there with great pomp and circumstance. As if announcing his arrival with a great show. In fact, the verse makes it seem that Naaman stood outside Elisha's house waiting for Elisha to address him. It's not difficult to picture what's going on here. But you know, Elisha doesn't even come out. He sends a messenger to acknowledge him. And the messenger in verse 10 says, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored to you, and you shall be clean. You know, usually when somebody is giving you the solution to what ails you, and it's the greatest, greatest dilemma to your, of your life, it's a dilemma for which there has been no cures. 
It's a dilemma for which you have exercised every option. And when somebody is offering you the solution, usually you're not going to be acting like Naaman. Because in verse 11, we find out that Naaman became furious. You know, he didn't come to Elisha's house because he had plenty of options. In fact, friends, he's all out of them. What's the dilemma, his leprosy? What's the cure? What's the solution? Go wash in the Jordan seven times. We might say, what's the problem, Naaman? Just keep reading. But Naaman became furious and went away and said, Indeed, I said to myself, I thought, I said to myself, He will surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and heal the leprosy. Naaman hears that there is a prophet in Israel, but he has yet to understand what that means. Elisha says, Send him to me. So that he can know what a prophet means. And at this point, he still does not get it. What a prophet in Israel means is that the word of the prophet is more important than the prophet himself. What the prophet suggests is that the power lies not in the prophet. The power lies in the word. God gave Elisha the word. Elisha gave the messenger the word. The messenger gave Naaman the word. And Naaman leaves furious. What's the problem, Naaman? I really thought that there'd be something different. I really thought that there was going to be a great show and the prophet's going to come out and wave his hand in the air and and the heavens were going to be opened up and I was going to be... I really thought... And he actually leaves because of what he expected didn't match up to what the word of God said. We might say, but the answer is so simple, and friends, it is. The solution for mankind's greatest dilemma has always been simple, friends. The problem is not what the word says. The problem is our expectation of what the word should say. The problem is when we start injecting our own human wisdom. I just thought, I just don't see how dipping myself in water cures me. I don't see, I just thought there'd be something, it doesn't make sense to me. Verse 12, Naaman has more to say. Are not the Abana and the Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? I mean, doesn't it make sense to go to those other waters instead? Could I not wash in them and be be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. Could I not wash in them and be clean? Here's what he's really asking, friends. Could I not do something different than the Word of God and still expect the same result? Could I not wash in them and be clean? Well, no. Well, why not? Aren't the rivers of Damascus better? No. Well, why not? Because God specified the river. 
The issue that Naaman has is not with Elisha like he thinks it is. The issue that Naaman has is the word of God. And as we're reading this text, friends, we're able to draw comparisons between Naaman and his response to the word of God and how people respond to the word of God today. Why? Because God continues to act like God and people continue to act like people. Nothing new under the sun. And what can we learn? Well, we'll draw out some points from here. Three points, exactly. We all, first of all, we all have to recognize that we have a life-threatening disease. Naaman's disease is leprosy. Why is he in Israel? Because, friends, he has no options. This isn't something that he could cure on his own. There are no options out there. We might say that this is his last resort. And when we're talking about dilemmas, when we're talking about mankind's greatest dilemma, friends, what is mankind's greatest dilemma? Sin. Romans 3.23 says that everybody has it. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Never has any human being in human history done anything to remove a single sin. There is nothing that you can ever do that can remove a single sin. You think of everything that's been done in the history of humanity that we might call good works. You think of all the animals that lost their lives in the name of sin. You think of all the blood that was spilled on the ground in the name of sin. You think of all the, go back to the garden, start there. Work your way through the Old Testament. Go through all the feasts and all the sacrifices. The morning and the evening sacrifices, the Passover. Every family had to sacrifice that lamb. How many gallons are we talking about here? Out of all the animal blood, the lambs, the sheep, the oxen, the goats, the doves. And then we read in Hebrews 10, 4. How many sins did we remove? Not a single one. It's impossible. There is nothing that we can do. What can wash away my sin? Absolutely nothing. But one solution. Friends, the point is, like Naaman, there's not a whole lot of options out there. In fact, we have no option. For sin, there is no other solution but Jesus. It's this devastating disease that ought to cause us to have this sense of powerlessness. We need to have it removed And we need to have it removed by God. But then secondly, what we can learn from Naaman, in order to hear the solution, friends, we need to come empty. We need to rid ourselves of our preconceived notions of what our salvation should look like. God requires an emptying of self. You know, sometimes we sing the song, I surrender all. What that implies is I give up everything about me. I surrender all. There ought to be an emptying of self. But not what Naaman did is what many do today in the word of God. They will begin with a truth that they think they know. 
They will begin with a truth that they want to be true. And then they go to their Bible for their proof text. And friends, they will find it. You will find in the Bible what you are looking for. Instead of coming empty, many people come filled with preconceived notions. Naaman had a preconceived notion about his salvation. And he went away from there angry. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, Matthew 5, 3. God resists the proud, gives grace to the humble. Where does hearing the word of God begin? First of all, recognizing your powerlessness in the situation. And then humility, ready to receive the solution. An open heart, ready to receive the word of God. But then number three, what we can learn here, God's solution requires faith. Let me ask you a question. Did Naaman understand what the word of God required? Was God's word too confusing? What's Naaman's problem then? He didn't believe it. Oftentimes, faith can prove challenging. We might ask the question, why? Well, first of all, faith doesn't begin with you. Faith doesn't begin with human wisdom. Where does faith begin then? Romans 10, 17, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Faith doesn't begin with our human, uh, human wisdom. You think of Jericho. Remember when Israel and Joshua chapter 6, remember when they reached Jericho? God says, I have given Jericho into your hands. We call that grace. It's a gift. But the next moment you find God giving Joshua the instructions. Let me ask you this, friends. What would you have done? If God gave you a city, and then he tells you, now go and conquer the city, how would you do it? Maybe you'd be like me. Okay, God, let me just get my, great, my best soldiers together. Let me get out my, 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 my book of military protocol, how to besiege and overtake that city. Except God says, no, I have a plan. A second reason why faith is challenging is because not only does faith not begin with your human wisdom, but it runs contrary to human wisdom. Again, go back to Jericho. What's the solution? What's the plan? God says, march around the city six times. On the seventh, time, march se- a seventh day, march seven times and blow your trumpets. Is there somebody that, would you think Joshua, given enough time, would have come up with that scenario? Would anybody have said, oh, of course. Why didn't I think of that trumpets? And here I was grabbing my spear. Thank you, God. Friends, faith runs contrary to what we would have come up with. There's not a person who would ever come up with a strategy That immersing yourself in water saves you. But then thirdly, faith. The reason why faith is challenging is because it requires you to submit your human wisdom for God's wisdom. What what do we call that? The Bible calls that obedience. To do what God actually said to do. The problem is we think obedience is a bad word. 
The thinking in religion today is, if I do it, that means that I'm trying to work for my salvation. That means I'm going to steal the credit. It no longer becomes grace if I do something. But I guarantee you this, friends. When they marched around this city and it was six times and seven times on the seventh day and they saw the walls fall, I guarantee you they would have known who did it. Hebrews 11.30 says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell. Friends, what faith is, is trusting in God's solution and not your own. Faith is trusting in His ability to save you. Faith is trusting in His Word and not your expectations of what the Word should say. Naaman, go dip seven times in the Jordan. Could I not do something else instead? No, because it wouldn't have been by faith. If it was by your plan, that is not faith. Fortunately, the story of Naaman doesn't end there. We find out he does goes away, but his servants intercede. His servants tell Naaman, verse 13, they speak to him, My father, if the prophet had told you to do something great, would you not have done it? How much more than when he says to you, wash and be clean. You came here ready, Naaman, to do something great, to pay, pay a big price. And then how, if you were ready to do that, how much more when it's so simple? Naaman obeyed God. He humbles himself when, and, and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan. That's verse 14. According to the saying of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. Send Naaman to me, and he will know that there is a prophet. At this point, he finally does. In verse 15, he returned to the man of God, he and all his aides, and came and stood before him, and he said, Indeed, now I know. Now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. There is no God like the God of heaven indeed. This morning, how do you hear the word of God? If you're not a Christian, that's what you need to be. How do you hear? It's an appropriate question considering that hearing is the beginning of your salvation. How does one be, uh, come to the, the knowledge of salvation? Well, he must hear words by which he must be saved, Acts 11.4. 11.14, what words? What words do I have to hear? Not man's words, not my words. Peter, on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, says, Men of Israel hear these words. He then proceeds to preach to them the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs. God proved them, you killed them, but God raised them. And in verse 36 of that chapter, he says, This Jesus whom you crucified is both Lord and Christ. And friends, you need to believe that. Jesus would say, Unless you believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. You need to repent. Luke 13, 3, turn, give your allegiance 
Stop following sin. Start following Jesus. Confess His name, Romans 10, 9-10. And be immersed in water. Romans 6, 3 and 4, for the remission of your sins, Acts 2, 38. Wash away your sins, Acts 22, 16. Baptism now saves you, 1 Peter 3, 21. And live out the rest of your life as if you believe Jesus has the words of eternal life. If you haven't done that, we extend to you the Lord's invitation to do that here this morning. Humble yourself in the sight of God. God's grace is free. There's nothing that you can ever do to remove sin. Only God does that. God's grace is instructional. He tells you how to do it. God's grace requires humility. God's grace requires faith in the solution. And God's grace requires obedience, friends. We're all cleansed the same way. By God's grace. Through faith in His solution. And our obedience to His instruction. This morning, where do you stand? If you're not a Christian, become one. If you are, stay one. If you need to respond to the Lord's invitation, we ask that you do so as we stand and as we sing. Fearless soul, I